0: and out to school the teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical math you study him hard hoping to pass working your fingers right down to the bone Everyone, My name is Lainey Hampson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City at the state level and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. First, some news. Elementary and District 75 schools for seriously disabled kids reopened in New York City to in-person learning on Monday after the holiday break. About 190,000 students who opted into in-person learning are attending school between one and five days a week. The rest of the time they're online, as are most New York City public school students who are learning remotely full time. Middle school and high school buildings are still closed this year until further notice. Both the mayor and the governor say that as long as there is regular random COVID testing happening in schools and the rates are lower than they are in the larger community, they do not intend to close all schools again, either in New York City or statewide during the pandemic. Meanwhile, in New York City, more than 103 elementary schools out of about 500 and more than 300 classrooms are temporarily closed because of one or more cases among students or staff. Also this week, the more infectious COVID variant, first found in England, has now been found in New York State. This variant is known to be more contagious and to affect children more than the original one and has caused the governments of England, Wales, and Scotland to close all their schools. The mayor has said he would like teachers to be vaccinated as soon as possible and if possible starting this month, but they are not in the top priority group established by the governor. The UFT, the teachers union, say they will set up their own vaccination program and that they believe all schools should close when the city hits 9 percent positivity, according to the state calculation. But now I'd like to bring in my very special guest, Professor Ja Meda, who wrote a thought provoking and optimistic piece in The New York Times recently entitled Make Schools More Human. The pandemic showed us that education was broken. It also showed us how to fix it. Professor Maida teaches at the Harvard School of Education and is also the co-author of the recent book entitled In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. Professor Maida, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So you wrote in your op-ed in the New York Times that by making pre-existing problems with education more visible, the COVID pandemic has actually allowed us to envision a way to rebuild and reimagine schools. Can you explain what you meant by that?
1: Uh, Sure. Um, So there have been, the pandemic has obviously been really um, difficult, and I start with the ways in which the lack of support from the federal and state governments has really created a, a very difficult situation for both teachers and parents. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, this has been a really difficult year, and so how can you be saying, you know, there's optimism and we can learn from this? Uh I think we're we're both right. It has been a really difficult year. Uh, I have three kids. Uh, two of them are school aged and they're, uh, learning from home. So I, I definitely get the, the challenges of the year. But at the same time, I think, um, it has forced us to, uh, pause and sort of think about what's really, uh, important. Uh, if we, if we go back to last spring, uh, a lot of districts, uh, including New York, were doing a lot of, uh, um work in getting families food. And um, so we sort of saw s- at the beginning that there's kind of like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs of what kids need. And you know, in schools, sometimes we're so focused on uh, the academic stuff that we forget that it all starts with uh, safety, food, belonging, and so forth. So for starters, we just sort of started to see students more as kind of full human beings and started to react to that. Um, and then that it's also created, um, uh, a, a real need for partnership with parents, especially when students are at home. So, uh, I think the sort of usual way that we do things is kids, parents drop kids at school and, you know, parents come occasionally for a teacher conference or if something's wrong. But, uh, this has been a year to really sort of see a partnership with parents, um, and so on and so forth. There's sort of a lot of dimensions to it, but I think that the sort of the, the big idea is, um, Students are human beings. We need to slow down. We need to build relationships. We need to uh, think about them individually. And those are all things we sometimes forget in the sort of uh, treadmill that is school.
0: So, you also point out that there's little doubt that attending school in person is better for most students who are frequently tu- tuning out of virtual learning. But, you also write, that more reticent students have really liked being able to type into the chat instead of talking online, and some students have thrived in the small groups afforded by virtual breakout groups, rooms. You suggest that when schools are reopened, they should allow for these individual preferences to be satisfied. How would that be achieved more specifically?
1: It's a great question, and uh, a lot of it will depend on the circumstances and the ingenuity of teachers and principals Um, i think it's just sort of i think there are a lot of possibilities but i think the sort of the key lesson is kids are different and i think if there are parents listening out there you know some some kids were really uh starved of the human contact that comes with physical school and have been sort of miserable under these circumstances and some students have have actually thrived and appreciated uh, the chance to focus on school, the less sort of uh, dealing with the social dynamics of school, um, and as I said, the, the chat has been a godsend for for some shyer uh, students. So there are lots of possibilities, but I think the the sort of the bigger point is school is kind of designed for kind of like the modal student, the sort of the middle of the road. But there is no modal student. Every student is different. And so the question is like are there ways to work in different uh, modalities um so you know i mean um when kids are are working on things teachers can circulate and see what's happening with uh, particular students you can do more things in small groups like there's no sort of like revolutionary answer i don't imagine a world where kids are sitting in fourth grade, all with computers in front of them typing to their teachers. Like that's probably not what, what we want to do in physical school. But I think it's just sort of like a reminder that um, I visited a school in Canada once and they had, uh, it was a new school and they built it in a fairly open way so that um, there was a lot more interaction between. So like all of the Fourth grade classrooms were around like a fourth grade nook, which was where the kids could hang out between classes. And the idea is that the fourth grade teachers would spend a lot more uh, time with each other if they could, you know, if they were not just off a long hallway, but they were actually sort of more around a circle and they were constantly running into each other. But then they created some uh, chairs in a sort of different part of the building that were uh, basically like um, the kind of chairs that faced away From everything, and it was because they discovered that like some kids didn't want to sit in the middle of this circle and have all the other fourth graders looking at them all day. They wanted to have some time to read or just hang by themselves, where they weren't in the midst of it. So that's sort of like a a small way of managing like introverts and extroverts. And so I'm just saying, just start to think about the ways that kids are different, which I think is one of the things we've included into from this year.
0: Another lesson from the pandemic that you write about is how it sharpened the realization that schools should be made more human. For quote, for teachers to actually talk to students and parents, understand life, their life circumstances and understand them in a fuller and more holistic way. You also write that schools that have succeeded during the pandemic are those where teachers have built strong relationships and warm communities. But one problem with this goal of building stronger relationships as well as some of your other recommendations, I think, is that they seem rather utopian and depend on schools having enough staffing and resources to allow teachers, administrators, and other school staff to spend time and get to know their students better, which in turn depends on having the funding for smaller classes and a reduced teaching load. In New York City, the public schools Have uh, nearly half of all students are in classes of 30 or more, and teaching loads often exceed 150 students, even in normal times. During the pandemic, we see that some class sizes are up to 60 or more. Meanwhile, many states are facing sharp revenue declines, which may lead to budget cuts and will likely mean even larger classes and higher teaching loads. What are your thoughts about this?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so let's separate two issues, the kind of warm communities and the individual relationships. So the warm communities are about the the tone of the class, whether the class has purpose, whether students are being asked to comply and do, uh, you know, fairly low level worksheets or whether they are be giving work that's uh, interesting and compelling. And so one thing we've observed is we've Uh, talk to a lot of school leaders uh, across the country is that, you know, there are some teachers that spend a lot of time at the beginning of the year building a classroom community, developing classroom norms, and um, essentially just sort of like building a place where students understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and get them invested in what they're doing. And there are other classrooms where You know, teachers are like, you know, you you do it because I say that you should do it. And that's what happens in school. And the former have been much more successful in the pandemic than the latter because um, the level of compulsion is just weaker when students are not physically there. And so um, the sort of um, draw them in approach uh, has had more success than the um, do it because I say so approach. Um, and so that's certainly easier, the smaller things get, but it's not uh, entirely dependent on it. The relationships piece, I totally agree with you. Um, you, you can't do relationships uh, without um, a manageable number of students. Um, elementary class, class sizes, in my view, shouldn't be bigger than 20. And um, in high schools, teachers shouldn't have more than uh, 70 to 80 students at a time, which is the way that it works in private schools. Um, and you're right that, um, given, um, funding levels, um, that that's a direct result of funding and thus, um, that there are some huge obstacles there in general and particularly this year with the budget comes that come with the pandemic. I do think in middle schools and high schools, um, We do have the ability to make some choices, and one choice that we've made is a seven-period day where students uh, take, you know, seven one-hour classes or a block schedule where students take uh, seven uh, classes over the course of the week. And the result is that teachers are prepping for four or five different groups of students, Um, and the result of that is that their sort of overall teaching load is, as you say, uh, about 150 students, which means that if they assign an essay that they have to give feedback to those 150 students and there goes your weekends and your nights and your early mornings and so on and so forth. So it's both difficult to build relationships and it's difficult to give people feedback on their work and help it uh, develop. Um, one one thing that some schools have, have done, which I've mentioned in the article, is uh, they move to a quarter system and they are offering two to three subjects per uh, quarter, and what that does is it um greatly lessens the number of things that teachers are teaching at a time. It lengthens the amount of time that students are spending on a particular thing, which allows them to go into it uh in more depth um and so that kind of organizational change is possible within the um resources that we have now, like as with any other sort of changes, there may be you know unintended consequences. what if you know, student is living for one of those seven things and that thing doesn't exist in this quarter. Well, that's complex and you gotta sort of figure out what the right balances and trade-offs are. But uh, I do think making some different kinds of trade-offs, you know, how um, students in um, East Asian nations, uh, there are some statistics out there that American teachers spend about 1,100 contact hours a year with students and Uh, teachers say in Shanghai spend like 600, uh, contact hours with teachers. And I asked, I went to Shanghai and I asked them like, well, how do you do that? And in, in their case, um, they made an, they made a choice of larger class sizes for smaller teacher load. So in other words, rather than teaching 30 students at nine and 30 students at 10, they taught 60 students from, uh, uh, n- 9 to 10, from 9 to 10, and then they had from 10 to 11 to plan. Now, I'm not advocating for uh, size, class sizes of that, but I'm just saying there's like a lot of variables in the equation and there are different ways to sort of think about it. Well,
0: one thing this comes to mind is, is you know, people praising uh, Asian countries for their high test scores and saying it sh- they show that class size doesn't matter. But when you look at what those students are doing, um, in many of these countries, they are spending many hours in private tutoring uh, companies. So what used to drive me mad is uh, Arnie Duncan always said, we should emulate what happens in South Korea. Well, in South Korea, the parents send their kids to school with pillows, expecting them to sleep through the school day, and then go in the afternoon and the evening to private tutoring companies. And, um, the average family spends a huge percentage, like 20% of their disposable income on tutoring in those countries. So I really do not think that we need to emulate that system, but that's just an aside. (laughs)
1: Uh, I I agree on the cram schools in South Korea. I like took South Korea out of uh, my slides a few years ago when I learned more about that point.
0: Yeah. Great. Um, so, uh, One practical lesson that I think is quite obvious um, that you've suggested is scheduling classes starting later in the day, particularly for high school students. And people have been talking about this for years, long before the pandemic. Why do you think it hasn't happened already?
1: Well, before I'll answer that, but um, you know, all change starts with hope that things are possible, could potentially be different. So right. there's a lot of you know research which suggests that you know kids' biological clocks, especially by the time they hit teenage years, are to stay up later and to wake up later, and that they just don't function as well uh, without it. So there's a really strong, just sort of like neuroscientific case uh, to to do this. Um, I mean, the two reasons that it, it hasn't happened are in places where students don't get to school on public transportation, which may be less true in New York City, uh, parents have to drop kids off at school and thus, uh, parents have to get to work. And then the other, and so if school starts, the later school starts, the later parents get to work. And then the other reason is sports. Uh, you know, after school sports have to start by, I don't know, 330 or so and thus. Um, school needs to end. I was particularly dismayed that this year uh, in a lot of places, there are not after school sports in the ways that there have been, and thus it seemed like an obvious year to push things back and so I think it 's just sort of habitual thinking and I also think in New York City, because of the I don't I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I imagine that a lot of students get to school by public transportation. So it seems more one one of the obstacles that is in place in a lot of places is uh, is is removed. Um, so it's
0: yeah. And it's one of the few, I think, highlights of the year that students don't have high school students, middle school students who you know, have to take transportation, sometimes spend an hour or more in the morning getting to school, yeah. uh, now can just sort of, you know, roll out of bed and log on. And so um, it does allow them to sleep longer in the morning. But uh, I just, you know, there are things like that that people have been talking about for so many years, and I just don't understand. That's a simple thing to do, um, as compared to some of the other proposals you have. So I just think that someone should wake up to that that need already. Well,
1: um, I mean, I don't know, like Karl Popper said that part of the problem is that the world is clouds and we try to treat it like clocks. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that like we're we're dealing with human beings and their natural inclinations. And the more we build off of those inclinations the more effective we 're going to be, so like in our in search of deeper learning book, for example, um, we um, talk about the difference between extracurricular activities and some core classes, and the difference between places where students have chosen to be can see the purpose of what they're doing, leads to a, an exhibition or a production um, where the size is of a reasonable of a reasonable um, you know, where there's a reasonable number of students. Uh, You know, there was a guy who was a a Spanish teacher and he taught uh, 150 Spanish students during the day. And if you watched him teach, he looked sort of haggard and frustrated and frazzled. And then you saw the same guy, you know, teaching 30 students in a production after school, two hours every day, people who wanted to be there were working on something that they cared about and loved. He was transformed, they were transformed. So I think like the more we go sort of like with students instincts to um, produce, to do things they're interested in, um, the more successful we'll be. And so adapting to their circadian rhythms is like the most basic of those.
0: That's true. So another specific proposal you have for next year is to discard what is inessential in the curriculum. You compare this to the philosophy of Marie Kondo, who gives lessons on how people should throw out whatever possessions and objects do not bring them joy. What I fear would happen instead is that what is too often deemed inessential will be jettisoned. Those subjects will be art, music, and science those activities, for example, not tested on state exams. Why do you think this will not happen?
1: I mean, one of the reasons that um, I'm really have been championing the Marie Kondo analogy is precisely to avoid what you just laid out—that, like the the instinct when people come back to school next year is going to be double doses of reading and math and cutting of everything else and that's going to be justified on the grounds that students are so far behind particularly disadvantaged students and so forth and i think you know we already saw that movie under no child left behind and the result is that there's just a lot of unintended consequences and you turn a lot of kids off from school as you sort of force them into double doses and you take out a lot of the things that kids find most um Interesting and engaging uh, about school, and so um, Shanna Peoples, who's National Teacher of the Year, was in a design charrette we were running last spring, and she said, um, "You know, I think we need to do some Marie Kondoing." And I was like, "This is a really uh, brilliant uh, metaphor because um, the question is, um, if you if you really think about it, not everything in the curriculum is essential." So there are some things that you want to keep your, you know, your, your Newtons and your Darwins and your Du Bois's and, you know, these are the things, these are like the paintings hanging in your living room, like you're not letting those things go. But there's a lot of other things in there that like, if I asked you about it as an adult, you could tell me that at some point in school, yes, it like passed before your eyes, but it's not really central in your thinking in life. And there's a huge number of things in school like that. And so some of those things uh, could be uh, cut. And then the most important thing in the long run are skills, right? Like the ability to, uh, to, to read, to write cogently, to think about an argument, et cetera. And so there's no reason to sort of like rush and like double to do those things you can integrate those skills within whatever units you want to do next year so in terms of like what's been missed i just think we should you know go after it with a a scalpel think really carefully like okay maybe there are some things in math that are really sequential that were missed and really like absolutely have to be learned before they come up again but like you know i have kids in school and like in fourth grade, they're learning how to write an essay with an argument and certain kinds of details that support the topic sentences. Like they're going to be doing some version of that till they graduate from high school. So like we don't need to like make it up exactly like next year. We can just integrate it into the work that they're doing.
0: So you are critical of NCLB, No Child Left Behind, but for whatever reason, not a Race to the Top, which in many people's mind supercharged the negative things about uh, No Child Left Behind. The standards and accountability movement has had a huge impact on our schools for the last 20 years or so with an emphasis uh, above all for schools to get high school test scores in English and math. In your book, you describe the Common Core standards as encouraging the deeper learning you think schools should focus on. Yet many parents have told me that before the Common Core, their kids used to come home with creative projects, artwork, and short stories, and now they spend their time doing worksheets. Teachers tell me their teaching is highly constrained by the standards, especially English teachers in which texts are supposed to be analyzed apart from any real world context. David Coleman, who led the development of the Common Core standards in ELA, said that students need to learn that in the real world, no one gives a damn what they think or feel. Um, One of the concerns I've heard from a lot of teachers this year is that they think that the standards need to be really revised so that they aren't so constrained in trying to reach all of them this year or even next year. What's your response, and why do you think the Common Core standards have been a positive development in our schools?
1: Okay, so um uh, there were a couple of things in your question. First was on race to the top. I was not in favor of race to the top.
0: Right.
1: On uh on Common Core, I mean, I think the idea was a step the animating idea, which was that um which was that standards should be sort of fewer and deeper. Was sort of roughly right, though I think that your description of how it's played out, particularly in English, is similar to some of what I also have, uh, have seen and heard. Um, I certainly disagree that like students, you said something like from David Coleman, students need to learn that in the real world, no one gives a damn what they think or feel except uh, he didn't
0: use the word damn the word he used we can't use on the radio
1: Okay, um, you know I think that's another sort of false dichotomy like I think students do their best work when they are invested and see the purpose and what they're doing which means in some way it connects to something that they care about or to some aspect of their identity so you know tell like James Baldwin or ta Coates or any uh, essayist out there that like you know you, you can't Describe in powerful language things that matter deeply to you. Um, so that that seems uh, that that seems not right. I think with standards and accountability, it was really the uh, accountability part that um, I'm 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 very critical of um, high stakes accountability with respect to tests because I think that it promotes a lot of distortions and. Uh, a lot of teaching to the test and a lot of constrained teaching. I'm not opposed to standards uh, in theory. I think it's perfectly reasonable that if you're a seventh grade teacher in the Bronx, you should have some sense of like what seventh graders can do in Westchester and other places across the state. And that there are sort of roughly some goals that um, are appropriate for kids at different ages. And I think when used correctly in the article, I cite British Columbia, which uh, um, revised their standards a few years ago to focus on uh, five big ideas and five skills that each kid should learn in each grade and year. And that, you know, standards used that way are—they're—they um, give a little bit of guidance, but there are lots of different ways to actually teach them. And that, um, so that's sort of like the version of standards that uh, makes sense to me.
0: So this gets us to our next topic. Already, the New York Times um, opinion page and others and various D.C. think tanks have argued that there should be no waivers from the mandated uh, state standardized exams this spring so that we can better diagnose student learning loss. The newly appointed secretary of education, uh, Miguel Cardona, when he was Connecticut state commissioner, said he wouldn't ask for a waiver uh, from the federal government from the tests for that reason. But many teachers and parents think this would not be advisable and would merely cause more unwarranted stress among students. I'm also concerned that with the fifty percent or so students learning remotely, this will require surveillance spyware be installed on their computers. What's your view of whether states should be um, asking for and given waivers from administering the mandated um, exams this spring
1: um well, the reason that I said that is because the um, the you know the circumstances under which students have been learning this year are so radically unequal. Um, I mean, you know, you literally have uh, poor students congregating outside McDonald's or Starbucks on the sidewalk to try to get internet access. Like, no civilized society should treat their young people like that. Um, um, And so so I think when the New York Times editorial page, I read that also, says that they're imagining it as if it's sort of diagnosis with no cost. They're like, we should know how far students have fallen behind this year so we can make sensible decisions for next year. But what we've seen in practice again and again is like, that's not how it really works. The way that it actually really works is schools are held uh, accountable or rated or their reputations sit on how well they do on this test. So if students are going to take the test, then the schools are going to try to make the kids do well on this test, which leads to a lot of uh, distortions in learning and a lot of uh, unhappiness on part of teachers and families and so forth. Uh, and all of that will be exacerbated under these circumstances. Now, were I a school leader? Like, would I want to see where my students were in reading and math at the end of this year and use that in my planning for next year? Of course I would. But like, that wouldn't require, you know, days and days and days of uh, testing. And it certainly wouldn't require my, you know, how well we've done this year to be, you know, reported broadly and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and teachers also say that the state tests are not that useful diagnostically to them. Yeah. They don't really tell them what they need to know in either specific areas of, of weaknesses or strengths or how to remediate them. So um, there's, there's a lot of dispute about, about how useful the tests are, even in the best of conditions. But I think there's, this year is so, so different that, um, you know, I think that there needs to be a waiver. It just doesn't make any sense to me at all.
1: Yes, um, the New York Times cut the second half of that sentence, which was like, do a moratorium this year while they try to come up with more authentic ways of assessing, you know, deep learning in future years. And the Times cut that out of my piece. So, so oh, yeah. really? they were very kind to publish it. But um, uh, I huh. mean, there were there were, I wouldn't take that as a sort of conspiratorial thing. I saw it after they'd made those edits and before we published it. They like you know you write two thousand words and they tighten it to seventeen hundred words and some of the words that they took out were those words. So.
0: Did they t- cut out anything else that that you thought weakened your overall piece in any way?
1: No, and uh, overall I think they they um, they strengthened the piece by um, tightening it.
0: So um, this also relates to the the idea of standards and accountability. Um, You propose that schools reopen with the creativity shown by some teachers this year who are signing work that gives students agency choice and purpose. Your book on high schools also recommends this, that schools should emphasize project-based learning, extracurricular activities, And all those things that um, really elicit more engagement and autonomy among students. I know that the most memorable experiences I had in high school were the projects I chose and completed and my involvement in art and drama classes that really sparked my imagination and and my interests and talents. And I know that most adults uh, agree that those are the things that they really remember from high school and really hope that all children can get the, the, the benefit of. But one of the reasons schools are prevented from allowing this sort of choice and autonomy is the same standards and accountability movement that have obligated teachers to cover certain discrete blocks of material and skills so that their students can pass the tests, which in turn determines how they and their schools will be evaluated and even if they might lose their own jobs. Now, you've sort of mentioned in passing what your views are on this accountability movement. Um, but uh, you haven't really acknowledged how that might further constrain how teachers in schools can really allow for that kind of autonomy among their students when schools reopen next year.
1: Yeah. I, I am quite critical of the standards and accountability movement in the previous book I published, The Allure of Order, uh, from 2013. Um, and then the deeper learning book, it was sort of, well, there are all of these bright spots among individual teachers and in electives and in extracurriculars, particularly when they're in the parts of schools, which are in some way kind of buffered from the, uh, testing requirements. Um, I think more broadly, you know, I say in the piece, something like, like we should have known one of the things the pandemic revealed that we really should have known all along is that you can't kind of widget your way to powerful learning. And I really think that's true. Like we sort of bought into a kind of linear business, like let's just set the goals and march the kids towards the goals and that will gradually achieve progress kind of vision. And I just, because of the importance of student motivation, like you can't, students can't become skilled at things without putting some you know, mental and physical investment in those things. And so, um, giving them some opportunities to choose and opportunities to go deep on things that they're interested and in, care about, like that's ultimately what will produce uh, deep knowledge and expertise. Um, and so, you know, if I asked uh, uh, someone who, you know, if I asked you about the French Indian War or the mitochondria or any number of topics you learned in school, I bet that the average adult's knowledge of those things would be pretty weak. But if you were on the high school newspaper and I asked you, like, how do you write a lead or what's the structure of a, of a, of a newspaper story? I bet if you hadn't read a newspaper story, written a newspaper story in 50 years, you would still know the answer to that because you actually sort of experienced what it was like to produce that kind of thing and you, uh, did it over and over with peer mentorship and apprenticeship and so forth. So I, I'm not, um, I think that kids should, I think there's some balance. Like, I think kids should learn something about the history of, uh, Western and non-Western ideas. Um, so I think there are some sort of big things that are important for, uh, people to enter the world, um, people to leave high school entering. But I think that, like, We spend much too much time on lots of details that people are never going to remember and conversely we could use a lot of that time to build skills and passions and uh, interests.
0: So um, one of the really important lessons that you think that we should learn from this year is the need to build trust and find solutions that are good for both students and adults. Um, one of the most unfortunate effects of the pandemic in my experience in this disastrous year are the intense divisions that has caused between parents and teachers in some cases, and many times parents against each other who may have different views of the wisdom and safety of having kids attend school in person, as opposed to learning remotely at home. Um, In New York city, the anger and controversy this debate has aroused has in some cases become very extreme and how can that trust and level of consensus best be regained next year? Do you think?
1: I mean, this year was just uh, a really difficult year, right? You're pitting teachers sense of their own physical safety, uh, which can quite, um, which can lead to death and against you know, overall, an overall kind of idea that students are better learning in person, parents need to go to work and are tired of having their kids at home. And uh, that's just a, like a really difficult conflict. And there is no like magical, great, one-size-fits-all way to handle that. As I think you've been getting from what I'm saying, they're not magical, great, one-size-fits-all ways to handle many things. But there are, you know, an ability to have transparent and open and um, empathetic perspective taking kinds of conversations, which is not modeled very well in our national discourse. Um, But um, I think there are examples of districts where uh, these conversations were, were had. Um, districts, in part, it sits on history, like the, the level of distrust that exists between administrators and teachers and their unions is very high in some places. And that just kind of got compounded with this crisis. So in part, it was about where, uh, you started and the sensible places, you know, they just sort of made allowances and some younger teachers were more willing to come in and some older teachers were, or teachers that were immunocompromised were less so, and so on and so forth. So it, it, I think it's just sort of like a, a, like a good government lesson, you know, like um, the importance of transparency, dialogue, trust, perspective-taking, etc. Next year, presumably, will be a little bit easier because um, lots of people will have been vaccinated, and so the, the direct conflict on that point will be... Uh, will be will be lessened a little bit, but one point I make in the piece is I think a really unfortunate aspect of American school reform is that um people in the school reform community are like we're doing what's good for kids, and if you're defending what's good for teachers, you must not care about kids and like if you look around the world uh and not just East Asian countries, but, you know, Canada, Finland, et cetera. Like that's just not how it works. Like the, the countries that, um, in some ways have more successful school systems, they understand that, you know, for schools to thrive, it has to work for both teachers and students in the long run. Same is true in private schools. Like why do private schools, uh, have, uh, more, um, retention among teachers. There are lots of reasons, but one is that they recognize that teachers are their strongest asset. And so if you don't develop ways that teachers can grow and f- feel like it's a reasonable job, then they're not going to stay with you, and that's going to undermine what you're trying to do. So we're, we're trying to get onto that sort of virtuous cycle.
0: Yeah, the, the, the phrase that's often used in New York City is um, teachers' working conditions or students' learning conditions. And if, if teachers feel oppressed and unable to do a good job, that will translate into a worst education force for their students. Um, uh, Professor Maida is okay with you if we take some calls? I think we have a little bit of time. Sure, that would um, be
1: great.
0: Callers, if you have questions for Professor Maida or thoughts about how schools should reopen next year, please call us at 212-209-2877. That's two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Um, Professor Maida, you also write about how important it is to catch students up on what they missed during the pandemic, but that we don't want a repeat of No Child Left Behind where disadvantaged students got endless drills in reading and math, while more advantaged students were given a richer curriculum. I think we've sort of discussed why that is, why all students need to have um, their interests and their abilities and, um, engaged in what they're doing and, and um You know, the very basic worksheets and drills does not do that and does not even bring you to the kind of learning that they need. Uh, But this also brings us to the various roadblocks, which is a lack of staffing, um, a a lack of resources, Um, even though he has acknowledged that remote learning has been highly defective this year and is essentially Effective, Our New York City Chancellor Chancellor Carranza recently announced a plan to double down on online digital programs to provide instruction and assessment next year to make up for the losses this year, I assume because it's cheaper and the mayor doesn't want to commit now to spending any significant extra funds on what students really need. Personally, I think smaller classes are more critical next year than ever to build the kind of close relationships that are needed. Others have also recommended an expansion of tutoring in schools, perhaps through an expansion of AmeriCorps to bring into the classroom recently graduated college students or the like. What are your thoughts on how to meet students' emotional and academic needs when schools reopen when they may be further constrained with the lack of resources?
1: Um, well, I don't know about the um, the new program announced by Chancellor Carranza, so I can't speak to that specifically. But um, I think anyone who has experienced this year would, you know, concur with much of what's in the literature, which is that, um, you know, uh, online learning... Works best for motivated students in subjects that they are already interested in, um, uh, when students already have significant social and cultural capital. So there's a big le- literature on, uh, MOOCs and online learning at the college level. That's basically what it shows though, like it, it can work okay for Um, people who are best positioned to take advantage of it, but it really does not work well for students who um, are disconnected from schools and so forth. The literature on virtual schools pre-pandemic, you know, the way that virtual schools work is they basically assume that you have a parent or caregiver that sits with you as you go through the um, synchronous and asynchronous online material conditions, which just were not in place this year and couldn't be given the fact that parents need to work and so on and so forth. So there's really no reason to think that that approach can work. There was no reason to think pre-pandemic and there's really no reason to think now having seen the results of the pandemic. I think some of the sort of online enthusiasts have been chastened a little bit by some of what's happened uh, this, uh, this year. I think tutoring is a good idea, um, and I think drawing on recent college grads and, you know, there's a lot of unemployed people out there, um, young people who are looking for work in this economy, and so I think pairing those things together could be, um, could potentially be really um, beneficial. Um, you know, it's, it's a little more complicated than it looks. So um, as with everything else, it'll depend on some, you know, training, support, troubleshooting, et cetera. But uh, in general, it seems like a promising direction to go.
0: Again, I want to open up the phone lines if people have questions or concerns, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Um, One of the things about the research that I've looked at on remote uh, learning, which you mentioned, is that the most dedicated, uh, focused students are going to do okay, especially if they have support at home. And um, that, uh, you know, trying to make up for the inequities of online learning um, that have occurred this year by doubling down on those inequities Uh, Next year is not going to work at all and that students do need the sort of uh, human one on one in person contact and feedback that are necessary. So I'm really hoping that our mayor and our chancellor learn from that and not try to do something on the cheap that is not going to work, not even not going to work. It's going to make things worse, in my view. Um, uh, What what I'd like to turn to now is the issue. The sort of what I consider the reigning ideology behind um, a lot of the school reform movement thoughts, which you touched on, but I don't think got to the very core of it, which was the one of the reasons for the accountability part of the standards. And I think that the accountability part was was essential to the standards and not separable, as you seem to think it was, was to provide some some sort of uniform um, marketplace or competitive field for teachers and for schools that they would either rise or fall, success, uh, succeed or lose, and the way that th- that would be measured would be through test scores. And um, while we have a competitive economy, which is measured in profit and loss, and certain businesses going bankrupt— I think the same animating philosophy was behind the corporate reform movement, except instead of dollars, it was test scores. And what that meant was that students would have to compete with each other more. Teachers would have to compete with each other and schools would have to compete with each other. And those that didn't make it would lose out and and schools would be closed. And other schools, including charter schools, would rise in their place and hopefully um, in their view, become more successful. I'm wondering if you have views on the privatization aspect of this in terms of the rise of char- charters and, and even vouchers that have been um, pushed very hard by Betsy DeVos and what the fu- whether the future lies in further privatization or trying to tamp down on that.
1: Yeah. Um, so I definitely think that you're right that a kind of mm-hmm. neoliberal business ideology was superimposed onto the education system and that that has, you know, predictably uh, not worked well. Um, I think that the the complexities are on the left. So like everything you said, including the underlying motivations, I think are, uh correct as an analysis of what many on the right hoped would happen through this school reform. But then you got like the Ted Kennedys and the George Millers who signed No Child Left Behind and so forth. So like, why did they do that? Why did they champion that? And the answer is because they thought that they were protecting civil rights and that they thought that um, essentially like a hands-off policy on schools was not yielding the results that they wanted for um, disadvantaged students and students of color. And I think that the history of the last 15 years has shown that that was misguided. Um, and so I think that the positive way to think about it is we are in a moment where a kind of new paradigm could be forged. Um, right. So No Child Left Behind era is over. The um, teacher evaluation movement pushed by the Gates Foundation um, has been shown to be sort of similarly wanting. Race to the Top is uh, in the rearview mirror. Common Core is still there, but is not a sort of new forward looking idea. So I think the um, question is like, well, what what could emerge now? And I think that there is increasing recognition of the importance of uh, relationships, stimulating students' interests, Um, seeing equity as something that we're not going to achieve through test scores but that we're going to achieve through um, making schooling more responsive to students of different backgrounds, particularly students of color. Um, There's a big racial justice movement going on in the country, and some of that has uh, infiltrated schools. Um, And then if we look internationally, again, particularly to Canada, Finland, and a few other places, the way that we've been trying to do things, the sort of neoliberal way, is just sort of like not the way that other countries have improved their uh, school systems. Um, And then also teacher strikes and... um, uh, polls which show public sympathy for teacher strikes over the last couple of years. So I think that there is um, and the idea that I mentioned earlier that what's good for teachers is good for for students, that we should see those things as allied. Um, I, I think that there should be a way to sort of sew all those things together and make them the sort of center of the sort of next uh, movement for improving schools.
0: I hope you're right. I I think with the new administration and now hopefully uh, a new Congress, a new Senate with the Democrats in control, they will provide the resources and push towards more equity in terms of things like class size and and overcrowding and and integration even that will prove to be more successful than the the reigning ideology of the past 20 years. I want to thank you so much, Professor Maida, for joining us. I want to thank you for your work for pointing out some of the some of the possible positive lessons learned this year through the pandemic, hope you might be able to join us again sometime soon.
1: Great, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you again and again. Uh, I will put his, the, a link to his op-ed in the New York Times and also a link to his book on high schools uh, in search of deeper learning: the quest to remake the American high school. Um, on the resources list on the podcast and at WBAI. This is Lainey Hampson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.0. FM Pacifica Radio. Our show's Talk Out of School is available as a podcast if you missed the live version. If you hear it through Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a WBA buddy to Talk Out of School by logging into Give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. I'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe. Thanks so much for listening. With the one you love, you're making romance All day long you've been wanting to dance Feeling the music from head to toe The drums loud and bold